The military service academies have seen a spike in reported sexual assault and harassment over the past couple of years. A Defense Department study found that the academies need to change their culture and their leadership structure to solve that problem. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr joins me with some of the details. And tell us about some background here, Alex. What happened? What did the Pentagon find? And who did this whole study and report? So last March, this report came out. And the results were pretty stunning. It showed that between 2020 and 2022, there was a spike of over 20 percent in reported sexual harassment, unwanted sexual contact for women and 4 percent for men. So as a result of that report, they ordered this study to find out what was going on, what needed to be done about it. And the study was released yesterday. It involved 40 different visits to the different academies to kind of assess what was going on there, what the environment was like at the academies. One of the interesting things they found is that students coming into the academy are reporting more sexual abuse and sexual assault than in the past before they even get there. They think that might be because of COVID and that people staying at home had increased domestic assault problems. Anyway, after they visited the school, they tried to look at the the whole picture and what they needed to do. Here's Beth Foster, Executive Director of the Office of Force Resiliency for the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness. We not only looked at sexual assault, but also overall climate challenges, prevention capabilities, and upstream risk factors that may be driving a range of harmful behaviors to include not only sexual assault and harassment, but also suicide, retaliation, domestic violence, and child abuse. And that's environmental factors, as she said, or pre-existing conditions which the academy can't always control. But what about management? The report found issues with just how things are managed. They did. And it had a lot to do with the structure of student leadership and also the professional leadership for the cadet units or midshipmen units at the different academies. And they said that while there were some themes in common, each academy sort of had its own specific problems. At the Air Force, the upperclassmen had a lot of control over underclassmen, and there were incidents of mistreatment, incidents of hazing. They felt like they need to give those those upperclassmen less control over the younger students. At the Navy, students were being put in leadership positions, and their feedback was that they didn't know how to lead. So they led the way they had been treated when they were underclassmen, and sometimes that worked, and lots of times it didn't work. At West Point, it was interesting because the the cadets said they went out in the field in the summers, and they worked with real leaders who had experience, and they came back to school, and their leadership didn't have that kind of training. And they wished that they had had that kind of leadership from the students and professionals right at their academy. This is uh, the senior prevention advisor for the department's Office of Force Resiliency, Dr. Audra Tharp. But what we found was that the skills of those leaders closest to the cadets and midshipmen, these peer leaders who may be one or two um, years older who have a leadership role over the cadets and midshipmen, as well as the professional officers, such as TAC officers or AOCs, um, are not sufficiently equipped, and in some cases, the peer leadership structure is actually creating unhealthy power dynamics that lead to hazing that further exacerbated this risk. Which is kind of interesting because upon graduation, those people will become commissioned officers, and presumably they'll learn a thing or two about proper leadership You know, by the time they leave the academies. And so these issues with bad power dynamics and I was hazed, so I'm going to haze you, this type of thing, how did this all play out for the students themselves? 
Dr. Tharp said it created a culture of cynicism and stigma and people feeling very negative about their experience at the academies. And she said that that actually is going right where you said it's it's going right back out into the field. They graduate and they take those learned experiences with them as they go out to lead troops. So that was a big concern. She gave a couple examples of things that actually had occurred at academies. Here's one of them. So in one instance, a cadet or midshipman had experienced a family tragedy, and they had sought mental health care off the installation because um, there was some stigma about seeking help on the installation at the academy. But they weren't actually allowed to get the help because they weren't allowed to leave the base because their unit had had a minor violation the week before. So the influence of that event wasn't just about that cadet or midshipman not getting the help they needed at that moment, but it sent the message to them and their peers um, that this is how you lead. This is how you care for people. And they took that out into the force. Or how you don't care about people, I guess, is what she meant to say. And so what recommendations then did this latest report have, Alexandra? We had a bunch of different recommendations. First and foremost, there needed to be a change in leadership so that you can't have untrained young upperclassmen treating the underclassmen this way and creating a toxic environment. They also felt that students at the academies need much better access to mental health care. They need more counselors. They need embedded mental health care providers. The stigma needs to be taken away of seeking that help because it's a it's a tough competitive four-year program and those kids need some help at times and and they need to feel like they can do that. The other interesting thing she talked about was social media. And you may recall that at Virginia Military Academy, there was a problem with a social media platform called Yodel, where students were allowed to anonymously criticize other students. Apparently, this is a, a big source of problems also at the service academies. Here's Audra Tharp. One of the key recommendations in this area really focuses on social media and ensuring that social media is not a source of misinformation and bullying. There are certain applications and approaches that just are used more at the service academies than we see at civilian universities. So it's a key opportunity to stop that misinformation. Maybe they should call it anti-social media because that's what most of it is. And Alex, then what happens next? The report is out. It built on that study that was done earlier, released in March. It seems to be like a roadmap. What happens next? They do have a roadmap, and the heads of each of the service academies have until October 31st to come up with a plan of action to get this thing under control. And at that point, they're supposed to move forward pretty quickly and start fixing these problems. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 
during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And And I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They're the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not just nice to have. We rely on them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause 
and, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, the, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's needed. uh, And, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice that whole approach because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's, it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's, it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do. But integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay. I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always 
kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is is there one person you mentioned your parents before mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today it was my grandmother you know with the understanding that when and when I was born right as I said I was born in the deep south my father worked extremely hard we didn't have a whole lot you know my I had 12 siblings and so when I was born I was very sick a matter of fact the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old the doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job but my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. That's just mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.